Book One by Helena McGuinness. Chapter Four One Step at a Time. Bernard sees William's cart coming up the driveway and heads over to the house to greet him. This is a nice surprise. Come in, come in. Sorry for the no notice. We need to get things moving if this dream of a big boat is going to happen. I'm a doer, not a talker, William greets Bernard. Now well fed, they head out to the workshop. The plans begin. We have plenty of trees. We must cut and replant. We will need a crew for that, said William. I think we can start with four men. What do you think? As he asked Bernard. It's a very heavy work, said Bernard. Do not look at the big picture, one step at a time. We have a family, the Quigleys, that supply the village of Kildaff with all the wood we need from their forest. That'll cost a lot, said Bernard. That is my worry. You just turn it into my boat, smiled William. And that I can do, Bernard laughed. It is better to start cutting here in Shrove. My crew will make a start on the cutting. My brother-in-law, Frank, is a fine, strong man. That will speed up the start of the build. We will keep every little piece of wood. My men are good carvers. I will get them to start making wooden pegs for securing the joints. No wood will go to waste. They will need payment now to keep them going through the winter. We will call village meetings and get workers to sign on for a small weekly wage with a bonus when the boat is finished. The last market day before winter is in two weeks. Most of Donegal will be there. Word of mouth will do the rest. The peg making will need to be done here. I need to keep an eye on it. We will pay per dozen pegs. That will keep them busy if the weather is wet. We'll need hundreds before we're finished. You are right. I will look after the weaving end of things. We have very good weavers in Donegal. The sails will be easier to transport and for us to make. The boat is going to get people working together. I will see what I can set up. We will talk at the next market day. Market day, and there is an air of excitement about Everyone is talking about the big boat build. Ladies and gentlemen, lend me your ears, shouts William. Come and listen to what I have to offer. Work through the winter. We are looking to invite workers to join in our adventure. Donegal will not hibernate this winter. We will be working like worker bees. We need weavers carvers, people willing to learn 
and believe in this project. We can do this. I have big dreams for Donegal. We are too isolated. We need to fix this. Imagine being able to cross the lock with ease, crossing back and forward as you please. Being able to drive your horse and cart on our boat. Think of the time it will save. For this to happen, we need to work together. Come and talk to Bernard. He is the one picking the workers. We will also need home workers, so there will be something for everyone. A queue forms in front of Bernard's desk. By the end of the day, they have plenty of workers signed up. The cottage workers will be paid for what they make as they make it. The builders will be paid, paid a small weekly wage at the end of the build, a bonus. William, I have never built a boat that you can drive a horse and cart on. Where did that come from? I, I have an idea, an image in me head. Come and sit and I will draw it for you. Bernard sits. I do not know what you have just gotten me into, Bernard said, shaking his head. See, space for one cart at a time, and standing room for people. It is like a, a big raft with sides. We need two landing docks. I am on the lookout for them, said William. I thought I was a goer. There will be no keeping up with you, William. I will have to build a small version of it. The kids will love that, smiled Bernard. It will not be working in open sea, just across the lock. So, Donegal comes to life. Along with plenty of music and dance, the homes, for the first time, were working for the boat. Preparation work is going well, everyone working on their own part of the plan. Bernard and Noel are making headway with the design. They are now gathering some rocks from a pile near the workshop to see what weight it can take. Bernard stops, steps onto the small model and Noel starts handing him some rocks. Bernard starts surrounding himself with the rocks. Then they close the tailgate. Noel and Frankie push off. Looks good, says Bernard. Ah, uh, maybe not. As the raft boat starts to take in water through the tailgate, laughing Frankie and Noel come to Bernard's rescue. Pulling the boat out of the lock. Back to the drawing board. The tailgate needs to be watertight, Bernard said deep in thought. William has cleared out a good space in his barn. 
He plans to set up a large loom for the weaving of the sails. A small loom is one thing, upscaling it is quite another. The local cabinet maker is working on it with William. The Quigleys have prepared all the wooden planks. The linen thread William has bought from the linen farmers. Now in the hands of the spinners. They are waxing the thread to build up some extra strength and waterproofing. This job is done by the cottage weavers. And so the work goes on, full of ups and downs. But the two men, William and Bernard, never give up. With the addition of two extra watertight gates, with added oiled sheepskins, the small raft boat has passed every test Frankie, Noel and Bernard can throw at it. It is now up on the cart heading to Kildaff. As they arrive into William's yard, William greets them with, Come see, Bernard, we have the big loom working. We need now to work out the size of the sails for the small raft boat and then for the full-size boat. Here we have enough waterproofed linen made to make for the small sails. This is marvellous, said Bernard. Let's work out the measurements. Noel, you are very good at this kind of thing. Three heads are better than one. The little raft now has two small sails. Back up on the cart, they head to Kuldaff Beach to try it out. It bobs up and down in the wild Atlantic Ocean. The waves quite choppy. It's a little beauty, smiled William. Aye, said Bernard, full of pride. The lock crossing will not have such strong currents. Frank and Noel return the little raft boat safely to the shore, all cheering. It is a harsh winter, the weather hindering the big build. The cottage workers are proving to be a great support. Everything is arriving in plenty of time for the boat builders. At last, the days begin to dawn earlier each day. The harsh winds subside. The men can work on the raft boat for longer each day as the light begins to stretch. Things are looking good for the poor Adairy, thanks to William, Bernard and Lorne. The women join the men on the cart to shrove. Lorne is teaching them to make the strong ropes. When they return to Derry, they will continue to work on them in the church hall. It is hard work on the hands. The men have set up a twisting device which makes the job easier. Everyone is developing muscles. The men bring home the spun cord every weekend, returning each Monday with the newly made rope that the women have made the week before. Father Joe smiles as he observes everybody working. They are looking happier and healthier. For the first time in his memory, 
There is plenty of work for all who want it. Their little school is striving. The younger generation will know no hunger. There will They will all have a trade. Money well spent supporting Lauren and Bernard. Now William McGuinness is also supporting their growth. God bless these young people for their foresight and strength. The day of the first crossing. Crowds are gathered on both sides of the lock. Portugal, 1800s. The Vice family. Father, Malta. Mother, Esther. Son, David. Daughters, Alegria and Rachel. Family, Salva. Father, Alfonso. Mother, Maria. Son, Rui. Daughter, Eleanor. Rachel is just leaving work. She has been delayed by just a few minutes and would have to catch up with the other girls. That few moments costs her dearly. Ah! She has been pulled into the darkness of an alleyway. It is pitch black. She tries to scream, but they have knocked the wind out of her. A darkness is closing in. A searing pain fills her body. Then nothing. A young boy has just seen a girl pulled into an alleyway. He freezes for a moment, afraid to move. Then turning around, he runs home, breathing very hard. It is a cold night just before Christmas. The bread would have to wait. Running in the back door of his home, he calls to his father. Papa, Papa, a girl has been hurt in the alleyway. What? Show me quickly. Then come straight back here. Do you hear me? Yes, Papa. They rush towards the alleyway. His son points. They stand still for a moment. Then his father taps his shoulder and whispers, Go home and tell your mamma what has happened. The father stands in the alleyway listening. He can hear nothing. He moves forward slowly. The alleyway seems empty. Then behind the bins he sees a bloody mess. Bending down he picks her up. A hopefully not dead young girl, looking about, making sure he is not seen. He takes the young girl back to his home. These are very troubling times, especially for the Jewish families. He knows by her dress that she is from a Jewish family. He's a Catholic. He understands right from wrong, unlike a lot of people in this town. At this time, the world seems to be going mad. Oh my God, she is but a child. Maria, his wife, has sent the children upstairs to their bedroom with an apple each. Supper will have to wait while they deal with this situation first. She has cleared the kitchen table and laid towels upon it. Her husband, Alfonso, is lying Rachel upon it as gently as he can. 
Is she alive? Maria asks her husband. He feels for a pulse. Burly, he replies. They work slowly and gently, cleaning and applying ointment to Rachel's wounds. Maria's husband carries Rachel up and places her on their bed. Sleeping arrangements will have to change for the moment. Returning downstairs, he smiles at his wife. She has already cleared any sign of what has just happened. I will head over to the church and see what can be done. You feed the children their supper. Rui never got the bread. I will quickly go and get it now, he smiled. Every day his wife made the bread and it, and it is baked in the community oven each day. Today she had forgotten. Time had got away from her, so she had not collected it. I'll go and collect it now and bring it to you, smiled her husband, giving her a hug. Then he left the house. He was back in a few minutes. His family are now sitting around the kitchen table as if nothing has happened. The only telltale sign is the haunted look in his son's eyes. Alfonso sits down at the table, deciding to delay his visit to the church, wanting to see his family settled for the night. Few words are spoken around the table this evening. The children settle quickly and quietly. Knocking on the side door of the church, Alfonso quickly tells the priest what has happened. Come in, come in. They talk together, making plans. How to handle the situation. Best to keep everything quiet. Keep her at your house as long as you can. I know this will not be easy. You are a good man, Alfonso. I will send a trusted doctor this night. The priest sighs, a sad look in his eyes. At Rachel's home, all eyes are staring at Allegria. Her father shouts, What do you mean you thought Rachel was with you? Tears feeling Oregio's eyes. Papa, she said, she would be but a moment. I'm sure I heard the door close behind us as we turned the corner. We were all chatting. I'm so sorry, Papa. Esther, her mother, has her apron held up to her face. She is in shock. David, come with me now. They grab their hats and are out the door in a moment. David, go knock on your uncle's door. We must retrace the steps back to your uncle's factory. There's no time to waste on such a cold evening. We must find her. Perhaps she has fallen and twisted her ankle and cannot walk. They are all retracing the steps back to the factory. Then one of the men lets out a loud, wailing sound. All the men now looking at a pool of blood in the laneway beside the factory. An hour later, Alfonso hears a gentle tap on their back door. The doctor slips into the kitchen. Where is she? 
My wife is upstairs sitting with her. She says she has not moved at all. They both head upstairs. Then Alfonso and his wife, Maria, leave the room to let the doctor get on with his work. At last, the doctor returns downstairs, a grave expression on his face. Not a lot we can do, except sit and wait. Maria crosses herself in prayer. They sit in silence. The sound of their clock ticking fills the air. The doctor is checking on her from time to time. I can do no more here tonight. I will pop back in in the morning. He heads back out through the back door and is gone. Alfonso, bed down here tonight. I will stay beside her tonight. Maria slips into the bed beside Rachel. She lies awake, hoping for some sign of movement. Nothing. Next morning, the house raises, rises gently as the sunlight tries to shine, the curtains hindering it. Rudy, tell nobody. I know. Will she be all right? Rudy's blue eyes full of concern. His mother smiles. I am so proud of you. She ruffles her hand through his hair. He pulls away, smiling. At first light, the priest heads, heads out and is now knocking on the rabbi's house. Slowly, the door opens. A fearful face peers out into the dawn light. It is not a good time for a caller. Seeing the priest, he widens the door, opening and waves the priest inside. The sad news is delivered. That she is unable to be moved yet. That she is getting the best care. I will keep you informed. You can pass on her progress to her family. We must keep this quiet, not to put the hosting family in any danger. The priest sighed. These are dark times. As the priest heads home, he is stopped by some soldiers. What are you doing out so early? I needed to visit a sick man, to bless him with the last rites. God forgive me, he thought. They let him pass. Early that morning, David arrives at the rabbi's house with their shocking news. Sit and drink some tea. I have some good and bad news for your family. Rachel is safe. She has been, she has been attacked and is not so good. She cannot be moved at the moment. A non-Jewish fa family is hiding her. They are keeping her safe while she heals. She is in good hands. Why was she on her own? It was just for a moment she delayed knocking up. Aleria thought she had caught up with them. She was not missed till Aleria was climbing the front steps. 
David heads home with the news. The doctor slips in through the back door in the early light. Any change? Maria replies, no. I stayed in the bed with her last night to help to keep warmth in the bed. She did not stir at all. If I did not know better, I would think she was just sleeping peacefully. I will head on up now, nodded the doctor, and was gone from the kitchen. Maria continues to make her bread, calling up the stairs. I will be back at a moment, just going to drop the bread off to the oven. The doctor is holding Rachel's hand. Can you hear me? I am so sorry this has happened to you. You are in a good place and in good hands. So rest is the best medicine at the moment. Your vital signs are very good. I do not understand why, but I'm very grateful for this. Maria is back in the kitchen when the doctor returns downstairs. Her daughter Eleanor smiling from her lap. As Maria starts to move, the doctor raises a hand to stop her. She is doing very well. As you said, she seems to be sleeping peacefully. I will call by tonight. He is gone. The McGuinness family. Granny Mac. Great Aunt Sarah. Roisin. Brian. K. Broderick McGuinness. Sarah McGuinness. Sean McGuinness, aged five. Mary McGuinness, aged three. 1960s Dublin, Ireland. Kay wakes up suddenly. She feels very strange. She wakes her husband, Brian. What's wrong? he asks. I'm not sure. I think I'm hosting a poor soul. You will have to call your mam when you get into work. Tell her I'm unwell and will need her help for a few days. What does it feel like? he asked. It's hard to explain, but I know whoever it is is in trouble to be here for healing. Brian holds his wife closely as she seems to be asleep. The alarm goes off. Brian gets the children up and dresses Sean. He will take Sean to school before heading into work, where he has a phone and will be able to get a message to his mother. Soon, he hopes, they will also have their own phone installed at home. They're on a long waiting list. They've been on it for seven months. Thank God for the family across the road. The Cochlands own a carpet business and that brings them to the top of the list. They were the only family on the road that had a phone. They were very generous to the neighbours. God knows how many times they had called an ambulance for Mary. Before Brian had gotten a car, 
even on occasions driving her to the hospital instead of waiting for an ambulance. The community have been promised there will be a public phone box installed at the end of the road. They are still waiting. Kay lies still, getting used to this new sensation. She had supported her own father in the 40s. When she, uh, during World War II, she had been in a coma for six months and had been able to help her father recover. Mary had time-travelled from the 50s to the 40s when she was unwell. This is different. I am very well. So whoever is here must be in need of a great deal of healing. There is an awakening within Kay's body. Where am I? A voice of a young girl asks. You are safe. You will be here for a while. Your body needs to heal. My name is Kay. I will carry you as long as you need. What is your name? Rachel Weiss. Kay shudders, for she knows what Rachel has just suffered. She has experienced it herself during World War II. She is carrying her grandmother. This is going to sound very mad. I am your granddaughter. Kay feels her body relax. I am in good hands, so, replied her grandmother. You also have the gift. So has my daughter Mary. The gift? Grandmother questions. Kay gets out of bed feeling fine. She talks with her grandmother throughout the day, feeling a sense of contentment. I know you will heal, so sleep all you can. I have got you. Granny Mac arrives up the garden path, as always bearing gifts. She hugs Kay and the kettle goes on. Sorry for calling you out. I woke up with a very funny feeling. But I am fine now. They sat drinking tea and eating cherry bombs. You know I'd love any excuse to be with my grandchildren, she says, picking Mary up onto her lap. She hugs her closely and Mary snuggles in. Granny Mac is a retired nurse, which has been a great comfort to Kay and Brian. Mary is like raising a little orchid flower. Kay knows the strength Mary holds within her. It belies her size. She is just like a doll. The nickname Dolly, her father calls her as he lifts her high up into the air, bringing her into the front room. He reads to Sean and his tiny daughter each evening after tea. Kay knits on her knitting machine in the evenings for the fashion house. Patty is still running in town. Mary's return home from hospital has meant Kay is working from home most days. 
Patty and Kay both live and walk in Stroud, so Kay meets at Patty's house to receive orders and to hand or orders over of, and of course chat. Madeline is in Paris for a week. They are both looking forward to her return.